Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with three very special guests, Andy Kravos, Bo Woods, and Nina Lee. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks, happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, Bo, Nina, can we start with uh, introductions uh, on, on your background and, and what brings you here today? Uh, so, my name is Bo Woods. I run the Biohacking Village Device Lab uh, for medical device security. Um, I've got a background in the information security, cybersecurity field. Uh, I've been doing it for about 15 years as a security professional. Before that, I was a security amateur, which means I made a lot of mistakes on my own computer uh, and some of my friends. Um, Worked uh, pretty extensively in in, uh, consulting, uh, largely in financial services organizations. Also helped um, run a hospital's security program for about three years. Um, And then for the last five years or so, I've been working with a, a grassroots initiative uh, from the security researcher or hacker community called I Am the Cavalry. Um, we say our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas impacting human life, public safety. Uh, and we want to be a positive, proactive force for change to ensure that the, the systems and the things that we already trust are worthy of the trust we place in them. Cool. And Nina, how about you? That was super impressive. I hate following up after him. So... I have been the project manager at the Biohacking Village for four years, and this year we became a not-for-profit, so now I'm the executive director. My background is in medical technology and security, specifically in electronic medical records, which I've done for about 16 years. Um, Before that, I was in the military doing some pretty intensive, awesome things in strategic intelligence. I have two master's degrees because it's a thing. One of them is in biomedical informatics, and the other one is in translational medicine with a focus on medical devices. Cool. And Andy, how about you? Hey, I'm Andy. I am the um, CEO of Electrolabs, working with digital biomarkers and using connected devices to collect biometric data. And I was thinking that this would be an interesting session for us because I met both Nina and Bo about three years ago when I went to DEF CON for the first time, which is one of the biggest bio... um, biggest hacking conferences and the biohacking village at DEFCON is one of the groups there, uh, one of the villages. And then Bo and I had spent, when we were both going through about a four month long clearance process to serve as entrepreneur in residences at the FDA in the digital health unit, looking at how the agency was going to be developing software and uh, machine learning and algorithm strategies and regulations around these sorts of tools. And over that time, I got to learn a lot more about how the white hat and security research community works with governments and works with manufacturers to really create safer, more effective tools. And thought this would be a really important thing for more people to learn about the interaction. Cool. The, um, one of the uh, things that brought us here was this uh, article that came out uh, in the Wall Street Journal late last year called The, the Internet of Bodies. Uh, could one of you sort of summarize what, uh, what that article was trying to uh, bring about and what your thoughts were on it? Yeah, so the, the idea around the Internet of Bodies is a 
concept that has been developed a lot more through a professor at Northeastern named Andrea Maturin. And she is looking at how different types of software products are no longer just supporting things like the Internet of Things, but are actually really working uh, to build or sustain somebody's life. So now that we have uh, ear implants that have different types of software and pacemakers have software and other sorts of tools are extending and prolonging life, there's a whole different way of how we both develop and regulate and think about the data that comes off of these tools and how, um, which government agencies are responsible for looking at them and how, as people, do we want to incorporate these sorts of technologies. And she's spoken at, at, at the Biohacking Village at DEFCON for the last couple of years as well. And, and Nina how do you uh, res res respond to that piece and the ideas therein? Or what does that make, make you guys think? Yeah, so um, because I've worked uh, a lot with medical technologies and the security of medical technologies, the idea of the Internet of Bodies immediately to me, like, just you know, stood up and said, like, this is an emerging issue that everyone should be paying attention to uh, in any kind of an oversight role or manufacturing and healthcare, um, you know, doctors, patients. Uh, because if you think about it, uh, we've kind of... Um, so with the Internet of Things, we've adopted a lot of connected technologies, software uh, and, uh, and Internet connection. Um, but we also imported the same security flaws that we have in the world around us. So, you know, when your computer crashes, uh, it's a it's a inconvenience when your car crashes or the software in your car crashes. It can be a safety hazard for yourself and for others. Well, what happens is we start increasingly um, becoming instrumented uh, in our daily lives with a Fitbit, with an Apple Watch, with other things. What happens when uh, our life depends on that connected technology? Things like pacemakers uh, in uh, blood glucose meters and in insulin pumps and other things. Um, this, uh, this dependence on those, those technologies is starting to extend way, way beyond where it was five years ago, 10 years ago. So, if you look at people who um, are born with some kind of a congenital issue and maybe they, the lower part of their arm didn't fully develop, um, they can get replacement technology that can go in and be a fully articulated hand so they can use it almost as deftly and adeptly as someone born with a fully functional biological hand would do, um, which is an amazing capability, amazing technology to extend and improve lives. But what happens when you start having issues where uh, maybe uh, the hand can connect via Bluetooth? Um, well, you've just now extended the range of potential controllers of that hand to anyone within Bluetooth range. We can go for you know, 100 meters or, or more, depending on the power of your antenna uh, and your, your transmission. So we're starting to run into these issues where literally the core fabric of our being, what used to be our biological selves, um, can be manipulated by um, you know, malicious actors or indiscriminate um, accidents at scale and at distance. Yeah, so people forget that there's so much technology put into these medical devices, and it's not just hardware and software, it's inside your body, which in itself is a hostile environment because it's going against your blood, your organs, which is a constant changing environment as well. So you're putting flood systems, the systems in hardware or software, into an already broken body, 
which can also create, um, you know, beautiful success stories, but we also have to be careful that it doesn't create issues with the human that has to interact with the device. What are the other sort of uh, implications or really hard questions that that piece and corresponding idea uh, brings up? So one of the ones I talk about um, sometimes is, uh, let's go back to the example of having a, a prosthetic hand, a smart prosthetic. Um, can you uh, increase the strength of that hand? Like if you were you know, going to a gym or something and working out, can you do that if there's a technology involved? Uh, if you can, does that mean you have to reprogram it? Um, you know, technologically it may be possible with an upgraded software package, but would licensing prevent you from doing that? In other words, uh, who lets you determine whether or not you can go to a, a gym uh, for digital prosthetics or to a doctor for do digital prosthetics? Does the manufacturer of that hand have to do all the repairs themselves? Um, so you start getting into some really, really thorny legal and ethical questions. Uh, then there's things like um, treatments that people uh, might undergo for PTSD, where you can stimulate certain parts of the brain through magnetic inductance or through electromagnetics. Um, well, that's really cool and it's really powerful. It's a, it's a therapy that can really literally change the way the brain works, which is great. Uh, but in speaking with a physician who was uh, working on some clinical trials for this, um, apparently he found out that one of the uh, young adults in his study uh, was manipulating the device so it would uh, overload him or overdose him. And in other words, get him high from this, this medical treatment. Um, so we're, we're starting to see the same types of issues that we might see anywhere, um, but now applied to this new technological domain where it's no longer about just body chemistry, body physics. It's about the, uh, the digital makeup and digital physics of that environment where you know, folks like myself who have a background in uh, information security, cybersecurity, uh, we're really the, um, the domain experts there, uh, whereas doctors and researchers in other fields are the domain experts there. And where those domains of expertise overlap, we want to be safer sooner by working together. So for doctors today, Bo, how do you think they should think about some of the cybersecurity issues? Like think about a pacemaker. Like are software updates something that is a responsibility of a doctor and, and like what role should they play if you find a vulnerability in a, in a product like that? Yeah, I mean, doctors have enough on their plate just trying to cure human diseases without looking at diseases that are injected via the digital technology. So I don't necessarily want um, doctors to have to think about security of devices. I want it to just be there, be ready. Um, what I do want them to be aware of is that these problems can exist, um, how to properly uh, um, how to properly counsel patients on potential side effects and ways to act or report things. I want them to know uh, who to go get information from. Um, you know, for instance, if there is a, a recall on a, a pacemaker or an insulin pump or something else that is, a patient has been prescribed under a doctor's care, I want them to know what the trade-offs are at the, the human biological level so that uh, working with the patients, they can together decide what's in the best interest in that particular use case. 
And what we've found in, in working with doctors, working with medical device makers, working with the FDA, is that by and large, those conversations aren't happening today. That doctors are in the dark, uh, that um, the FDA doesn't always know what to say because they don't know what the manufacturer's um, perspective is uh, or, or how to best engage and, and get that outreach that hospitals in some cases don't equip the doctors or the patients. So there's just this huge information gap um, that's setting us up to have, uh, I won't call it a public health crisis, um, but if we get too far down this road, you could have uh, a situation develop where uh, you have a number of people who have connected medical devices that are connected to the internet in some way that um, just like Today, you have computer viruses that go around and strike these uh, different computers uh, and take them offline or cause them to do things that would otherwise be harmful. Um, by transplanting those same capabilities and technologies into medical devices that people might depend on, you could have a condition where uh, a similar thing happens, where some type of a, uh, a malicious software can spread from person to person or can spread across the internet and impact all of the exposed vulnerable patients at the speed of the transmission over the uh, one of the world's fastest transmission networks being the internet. As a tangent off of that, doctors I've had conversations with continue to tell me they are not technologists. They went to school to be doctors. So they at least need to understand that there is the security in the device and be aware of it from conversations that I've had with them, there's a technologist that will come into the surgical suite and work on the, the, the device once the surgeon has put it in. And there's not a lot of communication between them, which also creates a chasm of, of knowledge, right? So along one of the strings that Bo was talking about, um, when, for example, if, if a patient goes in and they need a pacemaker, the patient is already under duress, and it's not as if the physician says, here are five pamphlets, go through this, see which one you know really appeals to you. Here's a phone number in case you want to talk to their help desk and have any questions. It's more about, we need to get you prepped for surge, we need to put you into the room, and we need to get this done now because of whatever reason. Um, so that's something that I think we need to take into consideration where the, the gaps in communication is and are, and add knowledge to that so at least we can build it up and there's not too much of a, a you know them and them and us sort of mentality you know one of the things you've been really good about is is, is creating these communities so there's not as much of them and us can you tell us a, a bit about how you first started with the idea of biohacking village like what it came from and what it looks like now so Full disclosure, biohacking village was not my brainchild. It actually started in about 2013. A group of folks got together, had their first um, village at DEF CON, started with nine talks. And um, I got pulled in about three, four months later because they needed a project manager. And I took on the, the task and it's grown over the years from being a nine talk village to um, three years ago, we got the IoT Village to help us with the devices, and then we came back last year, created a wet lab, which is um, people can work hands-on, do some swabs and things like that, things you learn in biology, 
And then we also did the devices lab, which Bo is in charge of. And um, just as our mainstay, we had the speakers session where people come in and it's not just uh, medical device manufacturers talking about their, their wares. It's also about the DIY biologists and the citizen scientists, the, the folks that are not experimental, but medical devices that they try on themselves, things of that nature. So for listeners who don't know, can you give some background of what is DEF CON? How many people go? Like, what, what is this gathering? And, and what are villages at DEF CON? Perfect. So DEF CON is North America's largest hackers conference. It is annually held in Las Vegas. Here it's being held in Planet Hollywood, Bally's, and Paris. So there's the larger conference um, where there's speakers, and this year they're doing demos. And the villages are the smaller, more focused groups of talks or hands-on exercises. So like Defcon, that's like black hat, hacker, what, like what, and we're talking about like FDA and device companies. Where, how does this all come together? Yeah, so, um, uh, so Defcon's been running for 20, this is gonna be the 27th year now. Um, and it's got a pretty fierce reputation of being uh, primarily for black hat hackers uh, and for white hat hackers. Um, black hats being largely criminals, uh, white hats being largely uh, professionals uh, in different sense, um, you know, defenders rather than adversaries. Uh, but the reality is that there's many, many different types of people who go to DEF CON. Uh, you have folks like uh, Suzanne Schwartz and Seth um, Carmody from the FDA. You have people from public policy, walks of life. Um, you've got uh, IT professionals. Um, you have the, you know, the security researchers who work to try and uh, test for security holes and then report them in good faith to organizations so they can be fixed. Uh, you have people from you know, in the healthcare side, hospitals, you've got doctors. Uh, a couple of friends of ours um, gave a talk at DEF CON several years ago uh, while they were in med school. Now they're fully fledged doctors and they helped us with the biohacking village and some other things. So you've got folks from all different communities who tend to come, although predominantly uh, the majority of people there are still the, the white hat security researcher um, community. Not as many black hats, not as many criminals go there. There's, you know, probably some, but by and large, these are the people uh, coming to DEF CON who want to learn, who want to engage, who want to uh, tinker with things. Um, and there's, uh, there's about five different big groups of motivations for security researchers, for the white hat researchers. Uh, it's not an exhaustive list and people have uh, as many different potential motivations as there are people. Uh, but you can generally class them um, into five buckets. People tend to major in one and minor in another. Those five are uh, protectors, people who want to look out for the other guy, who want to defend primarily. You have puzzlers, people who just want to figure out how the thing works, take it apart, put it back together like a Rubik's Cube. You have people who are in it for pride and prestige. They want to be the best at something. And that drives them to challenge the industry norms uh, and to do things that go beyond what's uh, currently known. You have uh, professionals. Uh, these are people who, as their day job, they get paid to do security research. 
Uh, and there's a lot of people who are uh, starting to do things called bug bounties now, um, which is uh, folks in their uh, spare time as hobbies will uh, work um, independently more or less for companies. And when they find a bug, they can report it and then get paid out. Uh, and then there's people who are patriotic or they're protesting something. They have some ideological cause bigger than themselves. This might be working for a military um, or it might be working uh, uh, you know, to protect dissidents um, who are getting malicious software um, from their, uh, uh, the country that they are a part of, like Syrian dissidents or Syrian journalists are being targeted by malware so that the, the authorities there can find them, torture them, kill them. Um, so many different spectrum, uh, many different motivations for why security researchers do what they do. Um, but DEF CON in general is a great melting pot for folks of different walks of life to come together. So when we created uh, the device lab, um, we did so in order to create kind of a safe space for high trust, high collaboration uh, engagement bec between those security researchers and the rest of the healthcare community uh, by and large. Um, and what we found is that, uh, you know, we had a lot of skeptics and we had a lot of people who weren't sure that it was gonna work. We had four uh, willing allies who jumped in from medical device maker community. Um, we had the FDA jumping in. We had some physicians coming together. Uh, and after last year, which is the first year that we did the device lab within the biohacking village, um, everybody was on board with it. So uh, the FDA um, in January uh, helped us launch an initiative called We Heart Hackers. Uh, the idea is that medical device makers would show their commitment to working with the security research community in order to find vulnerabilities and find better ways to address vulnerabilities before they can become patient safety issues by working together, by, by coming together and collaborating, bringing medical devices into this uh, area that has historically been, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's called the world's most hostile network uh, at DEF CON. Um, and working with security researchers to, to really understand, you know, how the threats work, um, what different attacks and techniques might look like so that uh, they can find better ways to defend uh, and tap into the um, uh, institutional knowledge that these security researchers have on what is harder for adversaries to break, what is more cost efficient uh, in security protocols um, to, uh, to defend. Uh, and essentially how to improve uh, their own designs by taking um, a more adversarial look at them uh, with you know, friendly hackers, as it were. So I've heard med device companies talk about security researchers and hackers as tampering with products. How do you think about that? Or what, what should you, um, what is a better way of thinking about the way that researchers and some of these device manufacturers can work together? Yeah, well, if you ask um, 100 people the definition of hacking, you'll get 101 different answers. But one of the ones that I like uh, tends to center around the idea of hacking as repurposing something for uh, a, uh, a task it was never intended to do or finding a different pathway towards the goal. Um, and I think in that sense, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of hackers who are able to uh, think around problems, who think nonlinearly who when they see a, a, 
a medical device, their thought is, I wonder how it works. I'll bet I can get it to do something it was not intended to do. Um, and so there's been a long history of security researchers and hackers uh, buying devices off of eBay or being patients themselves and testing their own devices and finding things that manufacturers in some cases didn't know about or didn't know it was that easy or uh, just uh, knew about but figured uh, wouldn't be a patient safety issue so they didn't fix it. Um, and that's uh, historically created tensions between security researchers and medical device makers in some cases. Uh, but more often than not today, um, instead of creating security tensions, it creates opportunities to work together and learn from each other. Um, and I think that that kind of hacking mindset lends itself really well towards what a lot of the, the so-called biohackers are doing. Um, because as Nina said, they're some of the folks who are um, they're pioneering new research uh, or you know, even if it's not cutting edge science, it's democratizing um, the, the way that healthcare can be delivered by creating more personalized solutions for care delivery, by creating more instrumentation so that people can know and see what's going on with the body in a lot more detail uh, so that they can feel more in control uh, of a disease process that sometimes makes them feel out of control. Uh, or on the flip side, augmenting and extending their capabilities to things that were never possible before. Like um, in some of the implanted microchips or implanted technologies that people are experimenting with uh, that have a lot of great potential uh, and that are um, starting to be realized by uh, you know, companies around the world, um, by uh, biomedical companies who are looking at some of this work and starting to adopt it or hire some of those folks. And I think Nina's got a lot of uh, a lot of other perspectives on the biohacking side. So just as an addendum to the conversation you just had, the FDA has a thing called the SIMSAB, S-Y-M-S-A-B, and it's, it's a new protocol of sorts to engage the medical device manufacturers to get the security into those devices. And in January, one of the suggestions was that perhaps we, they should have a Rolodex of sorts with trusted information security researchers slash hackers that if something comes up, they can make a phone call to and get them on the phone, fly them out to wherever it is or, or remote them in and they will sign off on all the NDAs and, and such so that we can gauge and we can help the medical device manufacturers better their security so that the patients are safer. The DIY scientists- That's pretty wild. Which part? So then, like, I mean, that's pretty wild. So then a company like Abbott or Philips or Pfizer might, might realize that they might have some sort of security issue and then they can call up the FDA and perhaps get access to white hat security researchers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think a lot of that's TBD right now. Right. I don't think the FDA has defined what that's going to look like. Uh, they don't yet have the funding authority from Congress. So a lot of it's still being worked out. So the other thing that happens with this whole situation is that medical device manufacturers, medical in general, carries a lot of fear around hackers, information security researchers, because they think we're going to find something and then expose it to the world and expose them to the world and put all of the patients that have those devices in danger. And I don't necessarily think that's the case when it comes to people that come to the village 
It's more that we ourselves understand that we're patients and we want to help make those devices so much better because we are going to either have them in us or know someone that does, or even if it's just for the betterment of that company or the device or for the human that's going to end up with it. You, uh, how have you guys seen the relationship between uh, security researchers and regulators? Uh, like, What is the state of it now? How, how has it evolved uh, over time and how do you see it evolving going forward? Yeah, I think it's never been better than it is right now. Uh, if, you, if you go back a decade or so ago, when some of the first um, security research uh, was being published, um, when um, you know folks like Jay Radcliffe, who is uh, a, both a security researcher as well as a diabetic, um, uh, were looking at the security of devices, uh, when they reported the issues that they found to medical device makers, um, they tended to get uh, either um, silence or legal threats. Uh, and that's a kind of a common pattern that we've seen over the last 30 years in the software industry. So uh, it's a, a little bit of a familiar landscape for security researchers. Um, then when uh, Jay would present his research um, openly, you know, give out uh, not details of how to do harm, but to raise awareness, you know, kind of raise the alarm without being alarmist, you might say. Uh, manufacturers started listening, their customers started listening, the FDA started listening. And I know from the FDA's perspective, it's been a many, many year journey to get to where they are now. And it started with, you know, first recognizing that there was an issue that they were uh, maybe behind on some of the security implications of uh, the hyper connectivity that was going into medical devices. Uh, so they did something that I think is really smart, which is they, they listened. Instead of talking and trying to issue directives, um, they really went and reached out to industry, to security researchers, to other folks um, to hear what the truth was, what the underlying causes were. Uh, they pulled people together and they've had several workshops on cybersecurity now where the objective has been to get people who traditionally are in silos to sit around a table together and talk about common issues and find deeper truths than kind of any one aspect or one perspective. Um, and what they've kind of come to is uh, over the last few years, they've been releasing um, guidance documents to industry on uh, what they expect to see when a product comes to market, for instance or once the product's on market, um, how the manufacturers will react and respond when there is a security issue, whether it's discovered by a security researcher or not. Um, so the, the documents they put out, and the most recent one was just published in January, uh, or was published in October last year, and they had a workshop in January. Um, and it's gotten really, really far advanced uh, as compared with regulators in aviation, automotive uh, and in other areas. Um, and it's uh, the way that the FDA has structured, the way that they've regulated, I think has a lot of um, good nuance and is, is very appropriate for uh, the industry at large. Um, they've also really embraced the security researcher community, which is great. Um, and they've done that not because they want to stick with which to go after industry, but they've done that because they've seen that security researchers can be bellwethers, can say, uh, can recognize shifts 
in trends, shifts in um, threats, uh, and can help work proactively and productively together with others uh, to really fill in a part of the conversation that was missing when they're not there. So adding on to that, so how do we see the current relationship? Um, there's a lot of community self-regulation. Um, we all share the same title, so we have to make sure that we maintain a certain amount of decorum, honesty, and integrity in what we do. And for the DIY bio folks and the citizen scientists, there's um, a certain level of fear around what we do because the FDA doesn't really have any real regulations around our industry and community, so we have to tread very carefully. What do you mean by that? What do you, how does the FDA not have regulations around what you your industry so there's not there's there's regulations around the medical device manufacturers and the emrs and all the other things but the people that are working on themselves for example so injecting the chips or implanting keyboards because that is happening things like that there's there's no regulation saying that you can't do it necessarily there's there's the, the principle of autonomy where we take that very seriously in that we have control over, over our bodies. And if we make the executive decision to implant something or try and experiment on ourselves, that's what we are going to do. So there's, there's that very small, thin, gray area between the, the regulations and the autonomy for how the DIY bio folks and citizen scientists work. Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. My, a really good friend of mine has type 1 diabetes, and it was really uh, hard for him to always have to do blood tests and see how his sugar levels were. And so he had found a, uh, with the, a whole community of uh, citizen scientists, had found a security vulnerability in an insulin pump, and that allowed them to take over this pump and create an entire artificial pancreas system that their whole team um, has now since published their code on GitHub. And, and they now have developed a piece of technology that really allows them to live a much more uh, free day-to-day -day existence with diabetes and not have to think about constantly doing all their dosing. And this is not something that was available on the market. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for this sort of citizen scientist work, even to inform device companies. Many of the Medtronics and Dexcoms of the world who are working towards these artificial pancreas types of technologies have hired out of this group to be able to bring it into their own world. Exactly. And just as an additional concept into this area, um, the DIY bio citizen science folks are not trying to politicize medicine, but we're trying to make it more socially acceptable to understand that you're autonomous and understand that medicine and taking care of yourself shouldn't end up literally costing you either your life or your leg sort of thing. Um, so that's something that the, the folks at the Biohacking Village also take into consideration. What's one, what's one of the thorniest issues that you've dealt with at the Biohacking Village? You're like, ooh, that was something I didn't expect and now we have to handle. So there's a group called Four Thieves Vinegar Collective and they are the people that created the $30 EpiPen and the medical device manufacturers create a, it, the, the one that's on sale um, currently, or rather on the shelves, is a $300 EpiPen that is used once. And because it's so expensive, it's, it's not really a viable option for a lot of people. And they tend to expire rather quickly. So 
creating the $30 version gave people the opportunity to go against their anaphylactic shock should it happen and have extras around the house. They would be able to carry them with them outside if anything happened rather than just having the one that they needed to have with them everywhere. That, um, that created a thorny issue. It didn't open at Biohacking Village, but it created the thorny issue of um, the manufacturers of the EpiPen had to go and testify in front of Congress about why this apparatus was so expensive for users. That sounds like a pretty good thing, no? I mean, that's like a <laughs> checks and balances aren't a bad thing. That's why we have capitalism. I think it's fantastic. I think... Um, the idea of being in more control of your medical state and giving the patients more understanding of what's going on with them medically is a huge is of huge importance. Patient literacy is not necessarily super great. You know, people watch their televisions and the, the market for pharmaceuticals advertisements is I think six billion or six million dollars every year. And that's just to show someone a commercial saying, you might have this. And then the physicians um, have to deal, have to contest with that with the patient saying, you know, I saw the commercial and I think I have it and I need this medication instead of the, the, the doctor being able to make those decisions and the patient being able to really um, understand themselves and say, you know what, I have these issues going on. Let's talk it through. Let's get the test done. Zooming out a bit, a, a lot of uh, companies have, have to, uh, companies have to think about uh, the FDA, uh, of course, as, as they're building companies. How, how have you seen, or how would you sort of give a uh, summary of how the FDA has changed and evolved over the last five years, say, with, with working with startups? What is the state of it now and how you anticipate it uh, going forward? I think they're becoming more open. So I think the FDA is becoming more open. A lot of it is because startups have become more of a a real thing, right? We, they're starting to get more attention because they're coming up with viable products. And the FDA, um, I don't necessarily think they have to change their ideals or regulations too much, but the startups are also able to fit really nicely into the areas that are not completely being paid attention to by the larger medical device manufacturers. Yeah, and I'll say, um, you know, from, from Andy and my work in, uh, in the FDA, uh, working on um, software pre-certification pre for software as a medical device, uh, you've got a situation where um, people who make software are starting to have the ability to um, drive treatment options, to drive diagnostics, to even uh, do some of the diagnostics uh, within an app or within a cloud-based service. Uh, and FDA uh, regulations aren't really meant or fit uh, to accommodate that, right? The Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act stood up in 1974 didn't imagine a cloud or a mobile device, right? That was like tricorder Star Trek science fiction stuff back in that time. Um, so what the FDA has had to do is try and find out uh, how they can effectively govern and oversee products that are... Um, uh, something totally new, uh, something unimaginable um, in the 1970s, while at the same time balancing out the, the fact that, you know, we're a traditional medical device life cycle 
might be many years because you have to build up the hardware and you have to spec it and you have to look at biocompatibility and all these other complexities. The timeline to develop a software tool can be six weeks. So you're talking about massive um, orders of magnitude and scale difference between what's kind of been assumed and the reality in some of these. Um, and some of those apps can range from things like uh, being able to detect tumors in MRI images uh, to keeping track of um, you know, blood sugar uh, coming off of a continuous glucose monitor uh, to apps that help um, rewire your brain uh, to reduce the prevalence of ADHD or PTSD uh, after just a few plays. So if you can imagine getting a prescription and going to the app store to download it um, and then playing this game that is a treatment, that's a world that we're moving towards very, very rapidly. And there already are several um, uh, fully functional medical devices that are entirely built in software. Uh, and so from that perspective, I think the FDA is trying to be very flexible and working with these smaller startup companies. We're coming up with these great, great ideas who have the programming talent, who have different methods of building software uh, that medical device makers um, haven't all taken on board. Uh, that are more scrappy, agile, startup-y, uh, while at the same time trying to maintain oversight or even use new technology to increase the capability for um, early detection of issues uh, or early detection of positive results coming out of a particular therapy or treatment. So your question was about five to 10 years ago. I was thinking back to my, through my career, and this is when electronics became a bigger issue within the medical community, right? So... Just as a frame of reference, again, I've worked primarily on electronic medical records and how those first started were they were silos. So cardio had its own, cardiovascular had its own, um, obstetrics had its own. Everybody had their own EMR sort of thing. And they had to be patchworked together with prayer bubble gum and rubber bands so that people could get their care correctly. And as the years went on, larger systems came through. So like Epic and Cerner started putting all of those systems together so the patients could go to one place, one ambulatory center, one hospital, and or their disparate ambulatory centers and still get all of the same care because everything was put together. And this is what I think, um, how it reflects your, your question is, the FDA has had to really change their way of thinking, like Bo said, in the 1970s, they weren't really considering any of these things. And now that it's coming at them full force, it's, it's a continuous change and they're continuously learning and they're really holding on to how can we make this better? How can we make it safer? How can we do this together sort of concept? I've been really impressed with the way that the FDA has been handling software. If, if you think about the way any normal tech company deploys software, it would be completely crazy if we made Facebook only ship one update a year. And we don't expect Facebook to maintain or sustain a human life. And so the FDA hasn't historically been built to review products that are changing. We don't tinker with our drugs constantly, but we are changing um, the way that we might put together an app or how an algorithm is evaluated. And so these Updates cause quite a lot of issues. And something that I've been impressed with is how the FDA has recognized that these tools are very much worth um, bringing out in a safe and effective way. And the ways of handling these updates is an important thing that might need new paradigms. And so they've been proposing a number of different ways to handle these types of paradigms. 
And they know that the best way to build these tools is to understand what are the negative externalities that you might not see. So going to things like DEF CON, working with the startup community, publishing incremental papers as they go so that they can tweak and figure out the right sort of structure is important. The other thing I think we've benefited from is move fast and break things in healthcare means people die. So there is some sort of benefit to having uh, an overseeing body who can help think through these sorts of issues. And there is a reason why we have clinical trials and have designed ways of generating evidence over time. And we've done as a society horrible things to humans during human subjects testing, which is why we have a number of different protections. And I think what we're seeing today in tech and how we've shared a lot of data in ways that people haven't really wanted to share is um, is a, is a version of repeating old harms that we have done. I mean, the consent process in current tech is really not an informed consent process, which is very well understood in, in the research community. So I, I think in some ways we are lucky to have an entire community who can help um, think through how we want to mature some of these tech products in a way that truly is safe and effective for the people who use them. Yeah. Uh, and if you could wave a wand, either of you, and, and change uh, anything about the FDA within the realm of possibility, um, the realm of you being realistic, what, what might that be? So my magic wand would be bringing the medical device manufacturers, the FDA, and the biohackers, um, security, DIY bio, citizen scientists, all in a room and having a Q&A session and being really honest about where everything is going to go um, with no fear, with no fear around it. I think there's a certain degree of uncertainty that people hold towards the, the hacking community of what are you going to do if this happens? But if everybody sat down, had a conversation and really understood the, the facts that we're not going after people, we're trying to help them. I think that conversation would yield a lot of really beautiful rewards as far as opening up conversations, better medical security, better devices. And, and I agree with Nina. I, I think it's not the FDA. I, I think a lot of this, ironically, is actually industry. The FDA has been perhaps one of the more forward-looking uh, groups of this whole ecosystem. Yeah, talk, talk more about the relationship between industry uh, and the FDA and how that, what are the challenges, tensions, or opportunities therein? As far as the DIY people go? Yeah. Yeah, so there's not a lot of understanding, I think, between the FDA and the, the hackery folk. It's more about um, you hear hacker and suddenly your shoulders are up, there's fear. And like Bo said before, it's not necessarily about breaking, it's also about fixing things, which the, the hackery community is all about that. We, we do talk about internally, like this is wrong, this is wrong, but we also talk about how are we gonna fix it? And the, just like every other organization and group, we, we self-regulate, we talk to each other, we make sure that people aren't going to be hurt by the modifications, changes, additions that we're doing to things. So as far as FDA, medical device manufacturers, and citizen scientists are concerned, if, if they had really open dialogue and could trust each other a bit more, 
it would open up a lot of avenues for better working together. Uh, I want to ask a bit of an out there question. I, I, we can talk about the FDA is a very forward looking organization, but, but it, nevertheless, it, it was created in 1906. And, you know, um, if, if you were creating, so I guess what I'm asking is if you, if let's imagine there was a charter city uh, that was creating a new sort of FDA from scratch in, in 2019, first principles, um, what might that look like or, or, or what might be different? Um, and I, I think we can talk about that without, throwing any sort of shade to any you know, organization that was started in 1906 and has a lot of inertia from it. I mean, I would get, I would definitely not build it with a predicate system. So the idea around predicates is that if a product looks like another product on the market, then you can have your product go out without having a lot of clinical evidence around it. And in some ways it seems very friendly. We're okay. We have a, a stethoscope this is another stethoscope. It's fine. But software products really don't look like other types of products. And so what ends up happening is you have a product that really does something totally different, but you claim that it looks like this other one. And so you end up having this huge proliferation of a lot of different products that are pretty unclear. And so what I'm hoping for and what I'd really love to see in a regulatory body over time is is perhaps ironically, a little bit more standardization around what things mean to be verified and validated, particularly for software products of like, what is the level of evidence that we need and, and um, what does that actually do? And I also think generally, and this has historically not been part of the FDA scope, we have a lack in our country of protections around what I would call digital specimens. So we protect you know, blood, urine, stool, um, physical specimens, genetic data, but we don't collect or protect any of these digital specimens that we have. And a lot of these can inform great deals of information about people. And so there has been, I think, a, a pretty big lack of across all the regulatory agencies from FCC and FCC, FDA, and others who might be able to touch pieces of this, of how we make sure that we don't discriminate against certain parties or use this information in a way that harms people overall. Yeah, I'd say um, 1906 was a very, very different time. Um, by and large, there was a lot more trust in government than there is today, a lot uh, less trust in industry than there was than there is today um, in, in a lot of ways. And so uh, agencies like, I think that was around the time the Federal Trade Commission was stood up. and. Uh, literally outside the Federal Trade Commission's offices is, uh, you know, someone doing the the good job of restraining industry, restraining this horse uh, that's meant to represent industry. So, like, the idea of checks and balances uh, is is what was needed. And because there were, um, you know, so few people who were really qualified to look at things, um, it made a lot of sense to have a single agency that consolidates all of this, that does the deep research, that makes decisions for us. You know, kind of a, you know, looking back at it, it's a little bit of a paternalistic system um, uh, where, you know, uh, uh, government is going to look out for the everyman. Today, I think the climate is different. Um, the political climate, the citizen climate is different. And so I think if the FDA were reconstituted today, there might be a little bit more on the way of transparency and inclusiveness. What I mean by that is uh, opening up um, some of the uh, some of the processes a little bit more, and we've seen some of that with uh, the work that the FDA started doing. 
with the pre-certification program that Andy and I worked on uh, with some of the decision-making and rule-making that um, the FDA has worked on in cybersecurity. Uh, but making generally making more information available in a more curated fashion to support decisions that they've come to. Um, I look at uh, one of the things that um, uh, one of the examples you can look at right now is, uh, and Andy did a great, uh, wrote a great article. If you haven't read it, you should go look at it. Um, but it asks the question, you know, since um, algorithms have side effects and pharmaceuticals have side effects, what can we learn about uh, overseeing algorithms and ensuring that algorithms are truly doing what they're supposed to be doing and not uh, accidentally having side effects from looking at the history of regulation of pharmaceuticals? So that's one area in particular where I think the FDA has a chance to remake itself in a new technological domain um, and to do so by having some kind of a public scrutiny towards algorithms or the training sets and data or something like that. Just the oversight there would be, be really good to see. Uh, and then what I mean by inclusiveness is um, kind of touching on what Nina touched on earlier, but also on what we've been talking about as a theme for this, this podcast is um, in 1906, it was industry, academia, and government. Those were like the three um, bastions of knowledge and of authority. Whereas today, a lot of the knowledge and authority is a lot more democratized. So, you know, you see security researchers who don't work for a company, they're just independent, um, who have a lot more knowledge than people who do work for a company in some cases. So they're out there on the bleeding edge, really discovering and meeting, and they're kind of the, like the tinkerers, modern day tinkerers. Um, and some of the biohackers are the same way, right? They're the ones out discovering new things um, and bringing them uh, into the light, figuring out how to reduce costs of, of medical treatments so that they're more accessible. And I think that a, a, a new FDA or a reconstituted FDA um, could look something like that with more of the transparency to bolster public trust with public body knowledge, publicly available body of knowledge to support decision making, as well as a, um, a more inclusive nature that brings more security researchers, more biohackers, more of these other outside experts in um, as a part of their decision making process at a, for, uh, a core fundamental uh, DNA structure level of the, the agency. But it does it today kind of, um, you know, group by group, I think more of a structured approach would be better. So my one wish and ask would be dropping some of the educational boundaries. There's a lot of people that are doing really beautiful work and because they don't have a master's degree, can't get into a lab, their, their work isn't being taken um, seriously. So the degree and the, the funding become issues for a lot of the work that's being done. And even though it's, it's something that can be completely groundbreaking, it's not open to anything because the people don't have the right background. Any last things you wanted to, either of you wanted to get into that you don't think were, were addressed? I mean, just to say it directly, go to DEF. If somebody's interested in this, DEF CON is going to be very interesting this year. There'll be a number of medical device community. People are very welcoming. The, the biohacking village you're, you're meeting 
two of the leaders at it. And I, I think it is one of the most forward thinking and exciting villages. You cannot sign up for DEF CON. It is 250, I believe, in cash. And uh, bring a burner phone. Yeah, so the biohacking village is an intense experience because it, it teaches you a lot about the whole ecosystem, which I think we try and build out every year so that when the hackers come and the medical device manufacturers, everybody comes, it's not just, oh, there's this is an office and this is how physicians work. It's like, no, this is how your body works. This is how the medical device manufacturers see this thing. And it's, it's everybody in one room and there's really open dialogue and because of that we're able to push push the envelope and move the security and the medical tech sec area forward uh well Bo, uh yeah and andy this has been a great podcast thank you for 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 coming on yeah thank you yeah thank you for having us thank you eric If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.